I'm Tim Richard. And I'm Michelle Bolin. And you're listening to the More Train, Less Pain podcast. More Train, Less Pain. It's a list episode. In this episode, Michelle and I list our top three things we've changed our minds about in the past five years. And to help us out, we brought on our good friend, deadlift and cat meme aficionado, Tony Gentlecore. If you're a movement professional and don't know who Tony is, shame on you, but I'll do my best to provide a little context. Along with Pete Dubois and Eric Cressy, Tony Gentlecore co-founded Cressy Sports Performance, which would go on to become one of the nation's premier training institutions for baseball athletes ranging from high school to the pros. Currently, he owns and operates Core, a training studio in Brookline, Massachusetts, where he both trains his own clients and provides a space for high caliber trainers to run their own businesses out of. You can find out more about Tony via his site, TonyGentlecore.com, which hosts one of the best fitness blogs in the industry, as well as on his Instagram, at TonyGentlecore. As someone who got through most of college and PT school by reading Tony's work on T-Nation, he is the living embodiment of why you should meet your heroes. He's one of the most authentic, kind, and passionate individuals in our field. You'll enjoy the discussion. A quick note, Michelle and Tony recorded an additional segment discussing tips for trainers to optimize income, additional revenue streams to consider, and how to build a career around the lifestyle you desire. Because of some technological issues on my end, which would come to no surprise for those of you that know me, Michelle and Tony recorded this segment prior to our discussion. However, this segment plays after the list portion of this episode. I recommend sticking around for it. All right, guys, let's get into the meat and potatoes here. This is going to be a countdown list. This is going to be top three things that we have changed our minds about over the past five years. So top three over the past five. Very, very excited to do this list with a very good friend of mine, Tony Gentlecore. Hello. Um, and to kick things off, what about me, Tim? What yeah, I mean, you're like you're you're the assumed always friend, Michelle. Fine. <laughs> Say hi to the fine people. Hello, hello. <laughs> so, the way we're going to structure this list is that uh, Tony has three things that he's taught about. Me and Michelle each have one, and then me and Michelle have a shared thing that we have both agreed on beforehand. We have not shared these ideas with one another, so that should ensure a somewhat lively discussion as we learn right along with you. That instantly just excited everyone. Yeah, there we go. So kicking things off, this would be my, I suppose, my number one thing that I've changed my mind about over the past five years. And that would be that folks can train as hard as they want, so long as they have the perfect mobility slash PT slash prehab slash rehab program. Um, that is something that I thought probably circa 2014, 2015, as I was immediately out of physical therapy school, that if we just assessed people well enough and we prescribed the appropriate correctives, that essentially people could lift heavy, run far, run very fast all the time, and that no problems would ensue. I think one of my big realizations of the past couple years in regards to that is the need to consider that the training that we're doing and we're having our clients and athletes do 
is a much more massive stimulus than the potential signal of like a low level respiration drill or foam rolling or like anything that looks kind of rehabby. And if we don't take into consideration what that athlete is doing in their primary means of training, that we're not going to have a very good eventual outcome with our like, mobility and respiration work. Michelle, Tony, thoughts? Well, I would love to hear. I think my experience from that would be like, I love lifting weights like five years ago. And then <laughs> people you know, that's the time where like other people around me were, were learning about like posture restoration Institute and like think that they needed to fix me somehow. And then like laid me down and maybe do these respiration drills. And I remember I was planning on training after this. And then all of a sudden I just felt like I was going to like pass out, not in, like, you know, fall over, meaning like fall asleep. And I fell asleep on the Northeastern University turf floor for like 30 minutes after those breathing drills. And I didn't work out. And got I you ready that's for exactly a nap. like what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. Just sweet, sick nap felt great after, but zero training occurred. And uh, so that kind of implies to me that your definitions of rehab and training have changed. So I would like to hear kind of maybe a little bit about that. That's a, that's an excellent follow-up question. Um, I think, I think training, and this is just off the top of my head. I think training is activity done for the means of uh, trying to garner some type of physiologic adaptation. And I think that so most, most commonly improved force production or improved aerobic output. I think research and professional experience is fairly conclusive. Like those are the things that we can have the greatest impact on. So I think that lives in training that lives in fitness. When I hear rehab and I'm a physical therapist, I think activities done for the purpose of improving an improving one's overall movement capacity so that we don't get incredibly narrow in our, in our kind of bandwidth of possible joint ranges of motion, which could lead to overload and injury. Could we also maybe loosely define rehab um, as like trying to help people gain or get to like some kind of like industry standard or baseline? You know, like if you see a deficit or like, cause like, I believe me, I, I'm, I've definitely gotten more out of the weeds. Like I, I people don't live in the textbook. Um, it's like a textbook will say, oh, you should have so many degrees of internal rotation of this and that. Um, and you know, I'm not one to say like, well, if you lack it, then you're, that, that is root of your pain, but it might be, it's information. Um, and we could say we, we would use rehab protocols to maybe say, okay, we're going to try to improve on that to get you to this more of like a baseline or standard to see if we see an improvement in your symptoms or, um, of sorts. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think that's reasonable. I think my point of contention with that arose when you when you first started talking, which is like, I, I, I kind of think that for a lot of the normal, you know, American adults kind of walking around, that a lot of them don't have what we would consider to be like normal human physiologic sure. levels of aerobic, of, of aerobic development and of strength. But I still think that those things in my mind look like training more than they do rehab. A lot of times those people will have movement limitations too. And this is why, as we've talked about before, it's so useful to 
be able to offer clients a service in which they have a um, potentially like a physical therapist or a chiropractor attend to more like the movement bandwidth areas. And then the trainer can really focus in on improving these physiologic qualities that probably need a certain level of movement bandwidth to execute in the first place. Yeah, that makes sense to me. And also I think too, like to me personally, when I hear rehab, I think post-surgery honestly, like as someone who ruptured his Achilles last year, last summer, my yeah, rehab, my, my re I, I went through rehab, like the first, like, you know, I had my surgery, you know, the weeks after that was rehab. <laughs> I was still training. Let, let's be honest. Like I was still like, I was actually still training pretty aggressively, to be honest. Like I, I ruptured my right Achilles. I trained the fuck out of my left leg. My left leg was like the T1000 by the time I was, <laughs> like, I was, <laughs> it was, like, I was like, I'll put that fucker up against anyone. Um, and I, you know, and I, I was like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to bench press. I'm going to do chin ups. Like, you know, I call it the trainable menu. Um, but I was rehabbing my, my, my Achilles on my right side. So to me, sometimes when I, when I hear rehab, I, I, as a strength and conditioning coach, like I'm not a physical therapist. Um, you know, I, I view rehab as what people go to like post-surgery, like for several weeks and then, and then they kind of graduate to training but i do agree with you tim that more often than not the better approach is when rehab and training are kind of the same thing where yeah people are using like i to me like i i tend to gravitate towards physical therapists like yourself who actually their rehab is getting people on the gym floor and like doing stuff not just laying on their back and like doing band exercises you know what i mean so um I don't know where I was going with that other than this I, saying in a long winded way that I agree with you. <laughs> all, <laughs> like, I heard was, all I heard was fuck band exercises. That's yeah. I, 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 I think it was just an excuse to, to brag about your really yoked left leg. Yeah, basically. Yeah. I mean, it yeah. got, it was, it was, it was crazy how strong it got. And then, and then of course, <laughs> when I, when I was able to start doing stuff on both legs, I was like, Oh, Oh, like, <laughs> yeah. you were like, I, I a, think- like, like a size 46 on the left and a size 34 yeah. on the right. Well, I didn't, I didn't atrophy that much, but, <laughs> but yeah, it was, it was, it was silly for sure. This is what's typically going to happen here. You guys are going to be humor, 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 funny, funny. And I'm going to be like, Hey, let's get back to business let's, here. Let's throw some <laughs> cold water in this. No, to, put, to, to put this point, to put the, to put this point to bed, cause I don't want to kind of belabor it too much here, but essentially the story that Michelle told was the motivation for making this, this, my larger point that like, I think five years ago, there was this big push towards like, all right, if we like when, when PRI kind of exploded into our little cultural zeitgeist in physical therapy and strength and conditioning, it was like, all right, well, um, people can still deadlift really fucking heavy most days of the week, as long as they do these 90, 90 exercises and like right sideline, left hip shift. And I fully bought into that because people would come to see me with pain I would do these exercises, they would improve range of motion, get out of pain, but then they would boomerang right back to me the following week. And it's because we, were, we weren't looking at the bigger picture of what the training loads that they were subjecting their own physiology was. I like that. So I think right now, I think I would focus like, you know, kind of going off what Tony said, the word like rehab around specifically addressing pain sensations or pathology. And like, kind of, he's saying like post-surgery, I would conclude like pathology. I previously probably thought 
the definition would fall under like isolating limitations and we could think of like movement limitations, but I actually don't think that's true anymore because I think all of us here and all trainers can address and isolate a movement limitation. Um, And I think Tony and I in the end are going to talk about like trainers value and income. And that kind of falls under that bucket in terms of, I think we're capable of more things than maybe the average person thinks that we are in terms of like blending those together. You know, we, we can do, you know, a lot of the same things that a lot of people go to like movement professionals to, to get better at. I, I do think to go to that point, um, to use Pat Davidson's like well-worn Outback Steakhouse analogy, when you go to the Outback Steakhouse, you don't want to be offered like the vegan menu. You want the fucking steak and the potatoes. Like if I oh, were yeah. to send someone to a trainer, I would want that person to be subjected to training and not a thorough 15 minute like table test exam, which would be way more the expectation if someone comes in to see me in my physical therapy practice. Yes. Who's next? Cool. I don't know. Tony. Who's next? Oh, I'm next. So I go yeah. my number three. Yeah. Um, so my number three, it, it, Michelle and I kind of discussed this in our, in our other discussion and it, it, there's going to be a little bit of a roundabout way I'm going to explain it. So, um, Early in my career, especially when I was at Cressy Sports Performance, I, I understood that my role there, I, I was a co-founder, and then there was Eric Cressy, and then there was Pete Dupuy. I was a tactician. Uh, I, I did not view myself as a businessman or a business person. Like I, I, I had no interest in knowing the numbers. I had no interest in knowing any of that. I just wanted to show up, coach people how to squat well, uh, and do some sprints. Uh, and then move on, move on with my life. Uh, and I remember I wrote a, a blog post or two, basically saying like, I would never want to own a gym ever, ever want to own a gym, being part of one and being part of a culture and being like a, a cog in the wheel, but I'm all for that. But in terms of like owning a gym, um, I don't want, I don't, I wouldn't touch that with a 10 foot pole. Um, obviously within the last five years, my mind has changed on that because I now own, <laughs> uh, a, a gym. And I, I wouldn't say, I, I have a hard time saying I own a gym. Cause I, you know, anyone, I mean, I know people can't see, you know, I think no one, I don't think people are seeing this podcast visually. Um, nope. but I, I definitely have the cooler background on the three of us, <laughs> but, um, but uh, it's not, Tony's it's, also not wearing pants. Yeah. Yeah. yeah well, well, oh, um, <laughs> But it's, it's a small space. It's 500 square feet. So it's a studio rather than a, being like a, a bona fide gym. But it is a business. Uh, and there are other coaches who use it and, and, and it's part of their business. So it, it is, you know, uh, its own entity and thing. Um, and certainly in the past five years, my mind has changed on, on gym ownership. How, with the caveat being, and I, I alluded to this earlier, um, it's like, I, I don't want people to think that like the holy grail in this industry is owning a gym because it's not. It's not for mm-hmm. everyone. Um, I don't think it is for everyone. Um, but also, I think you need to do it for the right reasons. Um, you know, so I, I didn't open up this gym to make, you know, seven figures. I mean, that'd be awesome if that ha- ever happens. And if I ever get, if anyone wants to franchise my my brand or my name, we'll we'll, we'll have a discussion. But um, but uh, I think you have to do it for the right reasons. And my reasons is number one, I want to be able to, to have a, play, a cool place to train my clients. But I, I, but I also love the idea in terms of my model 
I love the idea of, of, of helping other trainers thrive. Uh, Cause I do think there's a, there's a bevy of trainers out there who, who are in a commercial gym setting or maybe a strength and conditioning setting in the collegiate level who are doing very well and they're making okay money, but then there, there's a ceiling they have that in terms of, uh, you know, their, their earning potential, or maybe they just kind of feel like anything is a lateral move for them. Um, and of course, the next step is obviously gym ownership, which is just not, not, not going to be a, a great fit for a lot of people. And it's an intimidating uh, step. So to me, I'm like, well, I, if I can provide the space for other fitness professionals to come in and sublease um, and, and rent the space uh, and be able to thrive uh, and make a better and make a better income for themselves. Cool. Like I, I, I like the idea of that being a thing. So um, that that is my number three, because I mean, it's, it's, it's obviously a very personal one. Um, cause I know this isn't going to apply to, a, a, a ton of people listening, but, um, that is definitely a, a change of mindset that I've had in the past five years. And, uh, just a quick podcast host note, Tony is not full of bullshit. He absolutely practices this model. I sublease space from him from what, 2018 to the middle of 2020. Right. And you, you, but you remember, remember our agreement though, is that every time that I walk through the door, you, I, I had to say Neil before Zod, Neil before Zod. It was, uh, it, it was, it was, a, it was a little <laughs> odd that you forced me to write that into our contract, but I went along with it. It was a good yeah, opportunity. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah. And yeah, Tim, yeah, I think it was, it was close to two years, I think. Um, yeah, give or take. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I just, dig, I just dig that idea. And of course, don't get me wrong. Like it helps me with my overhead. So there's a degree of like, you know, selfish selfishness here in the terms of like yeah you know if i'm not here using the space why not allow someone else to use it but i but I, but of course i i want competent coaches that i know using it so uh um that i think that's that personally that's just my own my own choice but um but yeah it's, it's been a model that i think works very well um and uh hopefully it, it uh it continues to work because it, it, it thankfully it's still because it was such a small place it worked through the pandemic mm-hmm. um i i really balk at the idea of like if i if if i had made this transition to a larger footprint prior to covid how that this would have looked i probably wouldn't be i probably wouldn't be like tapping my heels so much um because who knows what that would have looked like but um but yeah again i i really like the idea of having the i guess you can call it like a co-op really um where it's just other you know have this sexy space well this place isn't sexy but soon to be sexy place that um has good equipment and a good environment and a lot of great coaches that can like share ideas. Um, and then I'll just allow people to thrive. And I, I just really like that idea. I love that. I, I am also maybe biased on this as well because I rent space from a, a local gym here and I just think it's like the best situation for a trainer. And it's a little <laughs> overhead for, it's literally overhead for you too. Like oh my there's, God. There's, like there's nothing, very limited yeah. risk, you know? So it is kind of like a mutually, um, um, beneficial relationship for me. Like it helps the, the, the studio owners overhead, but then also it helps the other trainers who just don't want to deal with any overhead. So, um, yeah, I think it works very well. Yeah. And so I definitely see myself as never owning the gym ever, but we kind of (laughs) talk about this when we, uh, excluded Tim and had our very private one-on-one talk here, but we talked about assumed authority and like kind of everyone in our field really wanting to work with like professional athletes, or in this case, you're talking about people wanting to own a gym. And to me, I kind of maybe take a step back and it was like, why is that? And it's almost like assumed authority to me is like, 
you want public notoriety for success versus like private. Like there's a difference between like making really good income, being very successful in what you do, uh, living the lifestyle that you want and kind of like that's for you. No one else, like no one else might know about it. Assumed authority to me is like, you want freaking people to know about it. And sometimes I think people want to own a gym because they want other people to think that they're successful in some ways. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I think I've, I alluded to it in our discussion, but even here it's like, you know, there's this connotation that the gold standards is gym ownership. And, yeah. You know, you can only be successful if you own a gym and that's just a bunch of malarkey. And I can't believe I just said malarkey, but I just did. So it. <laughs> I, I, yeah, please. In, in, lieu, in lieu of using malarkey, please swear on our podcast. And I will. I know. I, I, I'm trying to skew my ratio, you know, of like of F, F-bombs and words yeah, that 80-year-olds say. Yeah. Tony, <laughs> Tony polite me at, politely asked me in the beginning, which I thought was very lovely. And I said, he yeah. can swear all he wants. Yeah. Also, right, so I'm very excited yet? to I'm very excited to listen to the conversation that you guys had. Like it's it's gonna force me to actually listen to my own podcast mm-hmm. episode. Which I hate I hate listening to myself, but you should quick, listen to it. Make sure quick you like note. Uh, quick note just for physical <laughs> quick note just for physical therapists listening. I think that really there is the identical situation where it's like a lot of physical therapists out of school will, would put the notion of owning a practice on a pedestal and be really, really quick to decide this is for me, this is not for me. I'm definitely someone that probably does not ever want to manage a practice of probably more than myself. But, you know, here I am in 2021, uh, seven years after I graduated from school, and most of my income is coming from my own practice. So I think, I mean, I, I really love this point because it shows kind of individually how we've gone through our own careers and like money-making process, income-making process. Love it. Okay. Is it my turn yet? Yep. Okay. I'll make mine pretty quick. Um, I think the biggest thing I've learned over the past five years is like, regardless of like my training methodologies, programming, whatever, it's the extreme power of the words that I choose with certain people. Of in terms of like, you know, five years ago, I don't really think it mattered what I, I said. Um, I would just explain exercises, kind of tell people how it is kind of a thing. And then I really learned a great deal over time of like how people can perceive what I'm saying and, and take that positively or, or negatively. Maybe not my intent of like, you know, telling people, oh, you're, you're rotated to, to the right. This is why we're doing that. Or, oh, you can't, you can't do that yet. Or we're just going to get stronger or blah, blah, blah. And they don't either know what I'm saying or it's not applying to their goals and why they want to come see me and work with me. Or it's like putting a certain label on them that is probably doing more damage than, um, than the benefits that I think that showing them my knowledge is doing. The mic drop. No one's no one's talking. <laughs> no, I, we're well, stunned. I as you were talking, <laughs> Michelle, I was thinking personally how uh, I I've noticed that myself and how we uh, being I, I and as I've gotten older and, and in this in this um, industry more, like I, I definitely find that I have to I'm a little bit more cognizant of the words that I use. Um, or, and sometimes, but sometimes I let it go. Like uh, a good example, a couple of weeks ago, one of my clients who, who I've been working with for close to four years um, brought up uh, um, something that, I, that I've subconsciously been doing and saying around him that mm-hmm. I never knew I was saying or never, it never like dawned on me that this would like affect him in the way it affected him. 
Uh, and to give the quick example, is, um, it just so happened that during a week, he had a, he had a, a buddy of his in town who say, hey, do you mind if so-and-so comes within and during my session and train along me? I'll pay for it. I was like, well, no, you're not going to pay for it. I, this, it's, not, it's no big deal if he comes in and just does your workout with you. Not a big deal. I'll just, I'll just coach you two through it. Not a big deal. Um, and so that's what happened. Um, and then my client and, and his friend came in and, and they were deadlifting. Uh, the dude did his weight and then uh, Rob did my other client did his weight, Rob. Uh, and then, um, and then I, I look at his friend. I was like, Oh, um, Oh, that's Rob's weight. Just go ahead and add more weight on the bar. And I, and, and Rob, you know, to his credit was, you no, know, he brought that up later on. He, and he, he, he definitely, it kind of, I wouldn't say hurt his feelings, but it definitely rubbed him the wrong way. Cause he's a mm -hmm. former athlete or he is an athlete, but he, you know, and it, it just, and I never, it never dawned on me that me saying it in that fact, does that make sense how I explained it? Yeah. Um, and I, at first I was like, well, I didn't mean it in a bad way. Like I was just telling you like, oh, I, and, but that wasn't the point. It was, it was, <laughs> it was how it affected him. Yeah. Um, and it was a very good example of how, yeah, we have to be a little bit more uh, cognizant of the words we use. We can't just like be willy nilly and just say whatever we want to say as coaches. Um, but uh, yeah, our, our, the words that we use matter. I think, and again, I, I really, I love this point. I agree with this point. I think back to when I first started my career and there was a lot of insecurity because I definitely was at that place where I, I knew what I didn't know. And it was hitting mm -hmm. me like a fucking ton of bricks in the face. Like, oh my God, like I thought I could help 90% of people and maybe I can really actually only help 10 people. So I think from that place of sort of like intellectual insecurity, I would try to make patient situations sound more complicated so that they thought that I was really smart as I was attempting to work through their problems. Mm -hmm. And that was ego driven more than anything else. Like that's not something that's actually helpful when I'm working with a patient or client. And I think fast forward six years and I often try to make things sound as dumb as possible, like yeah. intentionally, sure. just to make it approachable. And I'm really checking for understanding because for, through whatever process over the better part of the last decade, like I don't think I have that baggage of needing that person to feel like I am smarter than them. I, I really just need that person to feel like I care about them and that I understand them. And I think language is like language is the window there. Yeah, def definitely. And Tim knows this, but I, I get a lot of people and I have a lot of people. Sometimes I say I know no to them based on how our phone conversation goes. But I have a lot of people who are, are from other trainers or physical therapists, mostly PRI based people who have kind of provided them with like labels on how they move in terms of patterns that they fall in or this is because you're why you're experiencing all this pain and you know you're, you're never going to get anything because you know you're rotated to your right blah 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 and everything a lot of a lot of the clients i have will, will do something and they'll ask me in grave detail like how is this affecting this is this going to make me kind of go into my pattern more and i'll blatantly like kind of what Tim does is I'll just kind of remove it from that conversation and be like, Oh, just, just try it out. See, see what you're going to do. And I'll try not to go down that path of explaining kind of anything and just kind of like, Hey, you can, you can do this. You're capable of doing this. Let's do it. And then not make it about anything else. If that makes sense. Yes. yes. 
Because that that kind of is it my turn? Yeah, let's do it. it. Can be because that going. that kind of bleeds into my number two. Perfect. Do Go it for it. So if there's a if there's a more convenient segue, that was it. Uh, it's almost fate. Um, so I my number two. And I wouldn't say this is necessarily something that I've changed my mind in in the past five years, but it's definitely guided my 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 coaching philosophy and approach for the past five years um, is really omitting words like dysfunction, broken, fixing out of my vocabulary with any client. Um, I've even kind of I even don't like even like using the word assessment, to be honest, because uh, I do feel the the word itself like, OK, uh, you're going to come in for your first session so I can assess you um, just kind of brings up the tone of, of judgment and mm-hmm. uppy, uppityness, uppityness uh, <laughs> um, where they feel like we're, the, we're right out of the gate. The, the client or athlete feels like they're going to be judged uh, and looked at um, poorly. Um, and that I'm going to, I'm going to point out every little wrong thing that's wrong with them, which early in my career, like, like Tim said, like I used to do like, I used to point out every fucking thing that was wrong with somebody like, Oh, your, your right shoulder is more internally rotated than your left. And your left, you know, <laughs> but it was just like, I mean, used to sound like that too. It was yeah, terrible. Yeah, it was weird. Yeah. Um, and I, I have to assume that it turned off more clients than it turned on. Definitely. Uh, um, and you know, who wants to train with the asshole is just pointed out 14 things that's wrong with me. Um, you know, and then I'm going to pay him, a 10 pack so he can fix me. Like, so, um, honestly, and I, and I will say particularly in the last handful of years, my assessment for lack of a better term is pretty darn basic. Uh, I, whereas, whereas in years past, I would put everyone on the table and take them through an active and passive assessment, look at hip, this hip, that, and, you know, I still kind of do it to a degree, but honestly, I say, show me your squat. And if they show me a pretty darn good looking body weight squat right out of the gate, like, I'm like, okay, we're fine there. Like, like I'm not, I'm not going to harp on the, on the particulars. And, uh, you know, I just, I, yeah, it's just, I, I, I'd rather get them moving sooner rather than later. And that's my assessment is kind of putting them through a rudimentary training session. Um, and you know, I, I just really, I, I just kind of not, and now the, the caveat or caveat, 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 whatever, how tomato, tomato, caviar. Yeah, is if if someone comes in with a with a particularly unique injury history, or are currently experiencing symptoms, then I'm probably going to go down the rabbit hole a little bit more, you know, because I I want to see what exacerbates their pain, what positions don't feel great, like etc. So that's where I'll probably do more of like the the table assessment stuff. Um, but if someone if someone's coming in with a pretty clean injury history and they're not reporting much of anything. Um, my assessment really is like a training session, to be honest. Uh, and I, and I've really gotten out of the habit of saying dysfunction, broken, fixed, because it doesn't do anyone any favors. And I think that's a very powerful, and I, I would encourage any fitness professional, whether they're a personal trainer, strength coach, physical therapist, whatever, massage therapist, um, to stop using those terms. Um, because there are many, there, there are many, you know, quote unquote, dysfunctional people that walk in who according to a textbook should be a walking ball of fail and they've never experienced any form of pain whatsoever. <laughs> and there are many people who come in with pristine posture, so to speak, and they're like, every, they, they, everything is wrong with them. Um, so, you know, it's just, we, we just have to be careful with those words, I, I believe. 
if I could hug you over video, I would. But <laughs> I can also draw the book Brookline too. Um, not that I'm following into like the realm of like movement nihilism, but like I just think our market is so saturated with what type of assessment you're doing with people. And at the end of the day, I am completely on board with you. Like I've completely changed how I interact with clients that I've that I'm just working with. I don't ever use the word assessment. I don't ever use the word test. Like my first, when they come in, we're just basically chatting and I take them through like a typical session just so they get the used to it, introduce them to people. And, you know, a typical session includes stuff like split squats and yep. blah, 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 and, and, and regular squats, double leg. <laughs> and like, that's what I use to be like, oh, how can I make changes? It's almost like this term called like hidden curriculum. I can think it all I want and I can do make decisions in terms of addressing like their perceived limitations, but I don't want to make them aware of it because I don't want to put those limitations on them as something that they are kind of focused on those instead of their current capabilities, which I want to emphasize. Yeah. Um, that's I think beautiful. Bill Hartman, Bill Hartman popper popularized the term. Like if you're not assessing, you're guessing. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I know he, he's, he's said it time and time again, and Bill Hartman is probably the smartest human I've ever met in my life. <laughs> yeah. Um, yes. He, he, I don't know if either of you two have met him in person or spoken with him or, yeah. um, he's pretty smart. <laughs> he's also uh, the sweetest man ever. So oh yeah. Super, yeah. And, and like, it's like Arnold Schwarzenegger's like long twin, long lost twin brother. <laughs> and like it, but, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I still agree with that sentiment to to a large component. Like, I mean, yes, I'm not just having somebody come walk in and like, hey, let's just train. And like, I mean, part of the assessment is sitting down and having that discussion and and like, you know, and, and doing all that stuff. And then yes, I mean, I am looking at basic stuff. Like I'm looking at a squat pattern, their hitch pattern. I'm looking at a push-up. Um, but unless someone comes in with a pretty thorough or unique or extensive injury history i'm not putting them through like the you know the hit list of of, of assessment and, and and even then i'm not really saying assessment to them i'm just saying oh, i'm just gonna look at a few things and just try to get some information um i'm not and i don't and even if it's not like if they if they lack hip internal range of motion on their left side i'm like Ooh, oh man we got to work on that like i'm not yeah, doing exactly. stuff like that which i think you know is a hard i mean i've had to coach myself not to do that uh, which, which took a lot of practice. I mean, to that point, and it wouldn't be one of these podcast episodes if Bill Hartman didn't get mentioned. Um, I bet we ring or something. <laughs> to that point, like Bill Hartman is a physical therapist, right? So true, yes, your true. physical therapy interventions better fucking be guided by something purely objective because people don't come to physical therapy for like the physical therapy experience. I mean, that might be why they continue to work with you over a very long time horizon, but Mm -hmm. by and large, like people that come into a gym to seek the services of a trainer, like they want the fitness experience and nothing detracts from that fitness experience, like a 20 minute assessment that takes up 40% of your session. I, while the, while the two of you were talking, I mean, I, it just, so many good ideas came to mind. Like, I love this notion of, we need to be coming, coming at an interaction with a client, like they are able and like, we are assuming that they can do stuff, not that they can't. Sure. So it's almost like we've progressed from this mindset of like, all right, client, you need to show me that I can trust you to put your arms over your head. 
versus, you know, now it's, we assume that you can do that. Let's do something that looks like that. If it looks good, we'll train it. If it looks, if it, if it doesn't, then we'll regress it back, which is so much more client centered and empowering than the alternative. Yeah, And I, th I think of when you say that, I think of client centered training approach. And I think obviously Tony's incredible at this. And this is a big, well, I give credit to my wife. My wife helped me with that stuff. It's uh, always the ladies, I'll, fellas. I'll, I'll, I'll plug her, Dr. Lisa Lewis. She she produced a resource called Psych Skills for Fit Pros. Oh, sick. Um, that is 13 hours of psychological client-centered shenanigans. Uh, you know, and uh, and I say shenanigans in a lovingly, like yes, respectful, like good way, not like oh shenanigans. Was he just talking? Like I'm not. I'm not saying that. Um, but I. I mean. It, she's helped me a ton through like, and I say problematic clients in quotations, like, you know, when clients lack motivation, they're just not like, they're just not like, they just can't seem to get there. And like, or, or maybe they bring up some personal stuff, like whatever, whatever it is. Um, you know, her, she, to my opinion, like her, hers is the best resource out there. And of course I'm a little bit biased. Um, but it's, 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 it's from an actual psychologist, not like a mindset, guru on, on instagram yeah 100 um, so, and that's a so, that's she a, talks about she you guys broke both brought up client centeredness mm -hmm. and she 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 crushes and sent and and discusses that at, uh, at uh, in a good way ad nauseum uh during her course and how to you know just the rapport and the words we use definitely matter soft skill we call them what soft skills, soft skills of coaching yeah. uh um and man they if there's anything I mean, it, we all know that what burns us out most as coaches is not really program design or breaking down squat squat technique. It's our client's shit, <laughs> and uh, you know, and like trying to get them motivated to show up and be consistent. And okay, that that's and that's kind of where we kind of have to alter our coaching styles and and uh, and whatnot. And that's where her resource comes in. Sorry for the plug, but I had to no, put it in there. Freaking awesome. I will link, we'll make sure we get it from you and link it in the show notes. Cause I think that's greatly valuable because, you know, if you're just so focused on biomechanics, then you are not client centered. No. And, no. and I guarantee you, I guarantee you 99.9% .9 of your clients are not going to come in and say, yeah, I really want to improve my like hip IR. Like that you never, it's never <laughs> going to happen. And not that I hold PTs to a higher standard, and maybe I'm saying this because I've been in an environment where PTs basically don't do that Bill Hartman quote that you just said. They kind of just train people, and if you ask them what they're doing, they're like, uh, they can't really explain themselves. But it's like fitness, like trainers, I say, what's your fitness goals? right? And that's how I'm making my decisions. I want to bridge the gap between where they currently are and where they want to go. PTs, their goal is to either take away a pain symptom, address a limitation or a pathology, right? And so if you're not directly having assessments to address if what you're doing is making sense, then I think you're shit for a, a, a PT. Same thing for trainers, but like our goals aren't necessarily going to be joint range of motions and, and movement options. They're going to be did I improve this mile time? Did I improve this person's ability to roll faster in a given amount of time kind of a thing, move more weight, kind of more fitness-based goals. And we program for that. We embed things in our programming. You know, you can put an AMRAP set to like show progression. So I think it's like, 
our assessments don't have to be these like going back to the difference between like rehab and training. They don't have to be these like joint range of motion type of activities. Yeah. And I think, uh, and maybe you guys come across it too, but I, I, every now and then I'll get a new, a new client who would say, well, are we going to do like a reassessment at some point? Yeah. And I'm like, no, I don't do that. The reassessment is your program. Like you see those numbers going up. That's your assessment. <laughs> like, yes. um, if you're doing more work or better work or more competent work now than you were four, six, eight weeks ago, meaning you're, you're lifting more weight or doing more stuff. Um, I don't need to assess you with working like, yeah, 100%. All right. Who's next? Who's next point? I, I will, I will be the spokesman for the combination of Michelle and I. So this will be our, <laughs> feel free to add in whatever you agree or disagree with, but I think you're gonna like the wording. So this will be the number one thing that the combination of Michelle and I have changed our collective minds about over the past five years. And that is that barbell strength is an absolute good which would mean that folks should always strive to be as strong as possible via the big three, the bench, the squat, and the deadlift, and that more force and more strength is always better. The applications of this would be that um, a sprinter or a court athlete or even you know a middle-aged dad that can deadlift 405 pounds is better than the one that deadlifts 225. That is, and Michelle, again, correct me if I'm wrong, but definitely I speak for myself and my own training habits. I very much embodied those statements five or six years ago. I would say at least personally, you know, where I've arrived now is that strength is a quality. It is a good quality, but strength, especially as measured by like a barbell bench press, barbell squat, barbell deadlift is kind of like an inverted U curve in its usefulness. So we should seek to be getting people stronger until they reach the apex of that inverted U curve, at which point pursuing continued strength is probably going to rob them of other, other qualities that would improve their performance or their quality of life more. Things like aerobic capacity, things like elasticity. There we go. Oh, man, that, was, that was good. I, I definitely 100% agree with that. And I think it's more in relation to making sure your mindset is fixated on their goal and not your goal. Like whose goal is it to lift heavier load? Theirs or yours. And I think there's definitely positive things for showing people that they can improve upon lifting heavier things. Obviously it gives people extreme amounts of confidence and competency in what they're doing. But then it gets to this point where it's like, you know, what is this actually benefiting? And a lot of the people I work with, when I try to push those things, there's always something that happens that either interrupts it in a way, or it shows me that they definitely cannot handle um, that continued pursuit of, of intensity. This also goes to the point that we just left about assessments and KPIs, yeah. where it's like, if a person's goal is to get as strong as possible, if they mm -hmm. want to train like a pseudo power lifter, ignore everything that I just said, that's fine. But it's about if you're, especially if you're in the training space, you need to have a variety of ways to show objective improvement besides the number, like the poundage on a barbell. And if we can get into things like mile time, resting heart rate, um, really hard to objectively analyze elasticity. But like, I think that's something that's tremendously overlooked, especially in middle-aged folks that don't jump, don't throw balls. Um, mm -hmm. Tony, thoughts? We will be back after this quick message. 
The biggest struggle trainers have with building their online training programs, attracting remote fitness clients, and maintaining communication is having quality videos that provide exercise technique and coaching instruction. Stop searching the internet. You will never find them unless you go to michelleboland-training.com. Gain access to over 500 unique exercise videos and hundreds of positional variations that you see on my Instagram to send to your remote training clients with the MBT exercise database. This is planet bullshit. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, go. I was trying to to do like my my best uh, stepbrothers impersonation. Um, No, I... I agree with everything you said. Like, I think oh, that's I think boring. We, I think I th- I'm going to have a, I'm going to have a, a different of opinions lately too. Um, but I think we would all agree that strength is important. You know, we're all, we're all, we're all interested in helping people get stronger. And that of course is subjective. Like what, when we talk about stronger, what does that mean? Like, is that a, 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 a specific number on a specific lift or is it being able to perform X number of exercises or X number of reps? Um, you know, uh, I mean, I watch pe- some people do some body weight stuff, like holding, a, uh, what do you call it? Flagstaff or um, human flag, know, human flag. Like that's strong. I can't do that. <laughs> like, I mean, so I, I understand that it's subjective, but I, you know, I think we would all agree that that strength is kind of like the, 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 the base of, of, of what most other qualities we're looking to improve. Like if you have a weak client or athlete, it's going to be hard to improve on the other, other stuff. But I do agree with you that, there comes a rate of diminishing returns. Like I know when I was at Cressy sports performance, you know, we had many minor league baseball players, like, you know, they, they would, they would deadlift on the trap bar 405 pounds. I think, Oh, I got to get to 500. And I'm just like, no, you don't <laughs> like you getting to 500 pounds is not going to, is not going to be the X factor of you throwing five miles per hour faster. And if anything, it's probably, probably more of a detriment. Uh, you know, the work that's going to take to get there, you're, you know, we kind of increase the likelihood that you're going to get hurt. You know, there's just a, there's just a, a cost benefit of, of doing business there. Um, I think where I would change the conversation slightly uh, goes into my number one, which would be like people need to stop uh, testing strength and start training strength um, in, 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 instead or building strength, I should say. Sorry, excuse me, um, which I you know I want to say probably Chad Wellesley Smith said this first, because um, I do think. I personally, my, the clientele that I tend to attract are very much interested in, in increasing their, their numbers on the barbell list. So whether they're deadlift, squat, uh, uh, bench press, et cetera, um, you know, just that I, I, I kind of get a self-selecting clientele based off the, the stuff I've written about for years and years and years. Um, where I've changed my mindset is the, um, this idea that we always have to test strength. I think that's where a lot of people make a huge mistake like, I, oh, I got to test my one rep max. I got to test it. I got to test it. I got to test it. Um, and they never make any progress. I think we need to build strength. And where we build strength and where I've changed my mind in the past five years is sub-maximal training. Uh, easy training is good training, in my opinion. I think, I think that's uh, uh, it's a beautiful term. And if some people roll their eyes at it, I'm not saying easy training is like a breeze, like you're still not working hard. You absolutely are. Um, but to me, I feel like if I can make someone's three rep max, their five rep max, their one rep max is probably going to go up too. And I don't have to be testing their one rep max all the time. So a perfect anecdotal, uh, example of this is I had a client of mine, a female client of mine, start working with me 
two or three years ago, who was a fitness professional herself here in the, in the, in Boston owns a gym, uh, is pre- came in, came in with a 300 pound deadlift, straight bar deadlift. Like she's pretty freaking strong. Um, but she was going for a, um, a strong first certification, whatever their barbell, uh, certifications call. I forget what it was called. And so she hired me to work with her to help her improve her deadlift. Cause her 300 pound deadlift, while she could do it, wasn't the best looking deadlift in the world. <laughs> uh, so she, she can muscle it up, but I was like, ah, there's there, again, not, not the best looking one in the world. So, uh, we spent 12 weeks, uh, building her, her barbell lifts and she wanted to hone in on the deadlift. So, uh, I was like, okay, well let's, let's, let's see what happens here. So we spent 10, 12 weeks training her deadlift. She never, now, mind you, she came in at 300 pounds. We didn't train anything above 265 for her deadlift the whole time. We didn't touch a weight heavier than 265 pounds. My idea was like, okay, I want to make it. So every rep you perform is fast. It's clean it's crisp, your technique is spot on, and that you feel you leave a session feeling good and that you could do more, that you feel like you could do more. Because to me, if someone leaves a session feeling like they could do more, they're likely going to recover from that session pretty easily. And they're going to be able to get right back after it the following day, if not the day after that. Um, So then fast forward 12 weeks, she goes and, and does a certification and, and tests out her deadlift. And what do you think her de- was she hit? She hit 350. Yeah, nice guess. So, so we didn't, we, we trained her deadlift at what 35, 40 pounds below her one rep max for 12 weeks. And she hit a 50 pound PR. And we, I wasn't testing her strength at all during that whole time. I was building her strength. So, um, a lot of my pretty much all, I, I don't do any one rep testing with any of my clients really ever. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I'll, I'll work up to the point where we work, we, we kind of work up to a challenging triple or a challenging double here and there. Um, and then that, that's, that's kind of like the, the crux of their, their strength training. I'm not, yeah, you know, I'm more concerned with building their strength, um, and, and, and making, um, those lifts or a certain weight feel easier. So to me, progression going to Tim's point, isn't always about more weight, mm. uh, more reps, it's about the feel of the set. So if, if someone is squatting, say 225, front squatting 225 for three sets of three, and it was like, you know, their RPE on that was a 10. Like they could, they could do the reps, but it was just like, it was like really, 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 really hard. But then I, I, I stay there 225, you know, if not a little bit below and make that weight feel like an RPE of seven or an eight. Like that's progress to me. They've gotten stronger without having to like add more consistently add more weight to the bar. So um, yeah, to me, that's probably the biggest thing I've changed in my programming in the past five years, particularly leaving a more sports performance-based facility is that, all right, I got to stop chasing one rep maxes. Um, And not that we did that at Crusty Sports Performance. We didn't, Um, but it was a very, you know, there's a lot of bravado and machismo and loud music and, you know, dick swinging a little bit. I don't believe Uh, that. (laughs) But, um, here it's like, so I, but I mean, time and time again, when I'm talking to other fitness professionals, when I'm presenting, I kind of make my case for the importance and value of sub maximal training and how that is. That's going to be, I mean, you look at all the popular strength programs, whether it's five, three, one juggernaut cube method, whatever, 
look at the bulk of their volume. Where is it? 65 to 80%. I mean, the bulk, like 90% of the volume is within those percentages. They're building strength. They're not testing it. So, um, and correct me if I'm that. wrong. Like the biggest mistake I personally see people make is assuming a training age in terms of like you talked about like a sports performance facility. You can kind of make the assumption that most of the people in there have a solid training history and age. Whereas like the clients that I definitely work with that have like zero sports history, really not that much training history. And I think people often forget you have to earn the right through volume in my opinion because remember i was talking to someone a few weeks ago about uh they transitioned from just running their like whole life into like the sport of power lifting and it's just like and like you know three minute rest periods between things and it's like you know i really don't think you ever earn the right to get up into that sport in terms of like that is you only perform like one or two reps at a time, right? You're pushing load after load. After load. You didn't, you've never acquired enough volume to like make that useful in some ways. Yeah. And then the other thing I kind of think about is, you know, I just wrote an article about like athleticism and it's kind of like shifting my mindset towards like pushing volume for people in terms of like exactly what you were talking about, like sub max lifts. I'm getting more into like strength endurance types of activities. Um, and then also like getting people to move more dynamically instead of um, pushing those top end loads. Yeah. I mean, I, Oh, no, go ahead, Tim. Sorry. So I, I just to kind of marry our, both of our final points, cause I think there's a beautiful intersection there. So I think what Michelle and I were talking about is like, again, this, this inverted you relationship where there exists a point at which, at, at which the apex of the curve, like gaining strength is no longer useful. It's going to detract from other qualities. I think what you're advocating in my mind from a conceptual relationship almost flattens the curve or it sustains the apex of the curve. So it's like now people can lift heavyish weights, but with way less wear and tear sure. because their RPE is low. Lower. So for, for folks that are very strength training and kind of oriented, that's incredibly useful because as long as you keep them from these really, really like 10 out of 10 grindy, ugly lifts that beat them up, in my mind, that's minimizing the collateral damage and the price that they might have to pay with joint ranges of motion or aerobic development or like any other adaptation we're trying to concurrently acquire. Yeah, I, I agree. Are you, are you, are any of you familiar with um, um, Dr. Michael Mash? Yes, he has. has, uh, um, I'm actually going through the course right now, but barbell rehab. So he discusses like coming off of injury using barbells coming off of injury. You know, he he discusses RPE rate of perceived exertion and how part of, again, rehab, I'm saying it in quotations, um, would be, uh, you know, instead of worrying about grinding out RPE nine tens all the time, you know, divide your volume in half. and, and, And instead of going like, for example, six sets of five, for on a, on a deadlift, divide it up three sets of five one day on Monday, another three sets of five on Thursday, but keep that in an RPE of eight, you know, so you're, you're, you're getting the same volume, but at a lower RPE, but then you're, and you build up your volume that way, rather than just crushing your spine <laughs> uh, at, a, at a nine or six, because I think there is a connotation like, oh, we ha- it has to be a grinder. I, I have to tell my clients all the time, like, I, I hate when you miss lifts. I fucking hate it. Like, 
I understand it happens. Like I'm not saying it's never going to not happen, but it shouldn't be a regular occurrence. And I can't tell you how many times, particularly with new clients that come in who like they'll say in their training, I'll, 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 I'll just through conversation, they say, yeah, you know, I'm on my own. Like I'm, I'm missing this lift and that's lift, this lift. I miss this rep. You shouldn't be missing reps. Like I could probably count on one hand in the past two years, the number of times that I've missed a lift where, you know, usually if I go in I, on my, on my schedule, it's like, okay, I'm doing this way, this way for this many reps. I do it. Like I, I very rarely miss a rep. It happens. I'm not saying it never happens, but it's very, very, very rare. Um, and I think if you're someone who is consistently missing lifts or missing reps, like that's not a good thing. That should not be a badge of honor. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree more. And it's like, again, I think we need to, we need to separate folks that are strength oriented that sure. want to pursue barbell lifts because they enjoy that thing from folks either looking for a more general adaptation or like a, you know, field court sport track type of thing. In which case I would say it's like, you know, get your individuals, get your people strong enough and then maintain that strength as you concurrently acquire other attributes. Yeah. And I think what you're saying is for people that really, really care about strength, continue to pursue that, but let's keep, let's structure things in a manner that's not gonna chew you up as much. Yes, that, and also let's, let's try to get out of the sagittal plane a little bit more. <laughs> that's, a whole, that's a whole different yeah. topic, my Look, man. I mean, I, I can't tell you that the eye rolls that I get when I give some of my male, my older male clients like a, a lateral lunge with reach or something, they look at me like, oh, really? And it's not remotely heavy, but I'm like, you know, this is good for you to kind of explore <laughs> like different ways of your body moving other than forward and backwards and flexion extension. Um, you know, believe me, like it, I, 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 that's, you're I getting like to train, crazy now. I you're train that way crazy. too, but, but it is, it, yeah, I agree. I, I think you hit it on the head, uh, Tim, in terms of the explanations. Like, yeah, if, if strength still is your, your thing, that's what you'd like to train, do it, but you don't have to crush yourself at all. Like to make progress. There is only flexion and extension. We are all kangaroos. <laughs> all right, guys. I know we're all kind of short on time here, so we're just going to wrap it up, bring it to a close. Uh, feel free to jump in at any time, but I've been keeping a running list with our rundown and we'll link, we'll link to this in the show notes as well, but going from top down. And again, these are things that we've changed our minds about in the past five years. Uh, mine was that you can train yourself into a blob into a puddle of human as long as you have the perfect rehab program to pair that with. I no longer think that's true. Tony's number three was the realization that he could in fact be a gym owner. Yeah, I, I pulled it off. I, I did it. I did it. Yeah. <laughs> Michelle's, Michelle's was that she is more cognizant now of the language that she's using with her clients and being a little bit more client centered and less technical jargon centered, which mm -hmm. paired incredibly well into Tony's number two. And correct me if I'm wrong, but that was learning to omit things like dysfunction and broken from your vocabulary when you correct. talk to clients. Yep, you got it. Okay. Yep. Michelle and I's collective one was the realization that barbell strength training is not the absolute good and everybody shouldn't be 
training like a power lifter and just pursuing strength numbers to the detriment of everybody else. And that paired excellently with Tony's number one, which was that everybody should not be testing their strength like a power lifter. And that submaximal training might let people continue to train strength qualities without getting so beat up in the process. Yeah. Yeah. It worked out. It kind of lined up beautifully. We didn't even, we didn't even like discuss it beforehand. Always does. Always does. Any, uh, Tony, any closing thoughts, comments? Um, no, I think that was a a lovely discussion. I I enjoyed it very much. Do you have any, uh, any products coming out? Anything? This this is the point where I'm supposed to like pimp myself, right? (laughs) Um, home base for me is always my website, tonygenicore.com. Um, I don't have any products coming out of late. I'm hosting my very first virtual workshop, uh, in March here out of my studio, um, my coaching competency course that I normally teach in person. I'm now, I'm going to be doing it virtually, but, but spreading it out over the course of three weekends. Cause I don't think anyone is at all interested in, in sitting in front of zoom for seven hours. I just, that's just not going to happen. So I was, like, crazy. Well, I was just like, so how about what if I did like three hours on one Sunday, two hours on the next Sunday and two hours the Sunday after that, but I also record it. So um, I think people are, 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 would be more in tune with that. And then regardless of time, you know, like where you're located and geography, like you, you're still going to gain access to it. So um, I'm going to be, you know, discussing my, my assessment process, you know, even though I said, I don't use that word anymore. Um, but also just breaking down how I coach up the squat, how I coach up the deadlift, uh, overhead, overhead pressing, stuff like that. So, um, yeah, I think, uh, I think people will enjoy it. And then, uh, I hope to be, I don't know, at some point, I hope to get to travel again for workshops. I don't know when that's going to happen, but, um, maybe, maybe in 2029 or something. I don't know, (laughs) but, but yeah, nothing that's, that's pretty much all I have going on right now. Right on. Well, thank you so much for joining us for this countdown. Michelle, any closing thoughts? Just going to give Tony a big hug. That's all. Yeah. <laughs> Drive on down to Brooklyn. <laughs> Bye. I know, you you know, know where I'm at. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. We'll be back to the show after this quick message. Whether you're a trainer, coach, or therapist, our jobs are hard. And oftentimes, the last thing we want to do after a long day or week is sit down and write ourselves a quality fitness program. During my first few years out from physical therapy school, I found myself falling into this trap and repeating the same ineffective workouts that yielded the same familiar aches and pains along with the same old strength numbers or running paces. Towards the end, I found that it started to sap some of the enthusiasm I was bringing to the table when working with clients, and I couldn't have that. One of the best personal and professional decisions I've made in recent memory was hiring a coach to design my own strength conditioning programs. Removing the pressure of constructing my own workouts was massive and enabled me to experience different facets of training while continuing to progress towards my unique fitness and performance goals. That's why I'm so passionate about my remote personal training service. Every four weeks, you get a new program fully customized around your time demands, injury history, performance goals, and equipment availability. Each exercise in the PDF is linked to a YouTube video of yours truly, so you always know what you're supposed to be doing. We'll chat on Zoom for 30 minutes during the first and last weeks of the program, and I'm available seven days a week for questions or video feedback via email. Take a major step towards your mental and physical health today. Let me program for you so that you can rediscover why you love training in the first place. Find out more by going to timrichart.com services. 
And now back to the show. And now Tony and I are going to get into considerations and avenues for making a reasonable income in the fitness industry. Enjoy. So Tony, typically overall, I would say, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, people don't really get into the fitness industry to like make money as their like main goal. Typically they kind of, you know, do what they love to do. And if they make money, great, whatever, maybe they're just lucky, but how, in your opinion, can people, you know, do both and be successful in terms of Uh, making respectable or a reasonable income and then doing what they love to do? Uh, This is a a deep hole of a question (laughs) Yeah, because I think you're correct. I don't think, I I really don't know of anyone in my, in my circle of colleagues and friends. And I I know a lot of people in the industry and you and I both know a lot of the same people Mm -hmm. who jumped into the industry at the, at the idea of making a a boatload of money. Like no one did it for that, for that purpose. Um, However, we all have successful people in the industry. And I think there's also this connotation that it's, you kind of get shamed in yes. the industry if if that is a kind of like a um, an impetus for you or a goal of yours is to make money in the industry. I think there 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 is definitely a degree of shaming uh, where we're mm-hmm. supposed to just like put our head down, stay in the trenches, put in these long hours, uh, and just like keep your mouth shut and do the work. Um, believe me, I am a fan of that. Uh, I think that is kind of like the the uh, if there's a foundation of like getting to the peak in the industry in terms of like your earning potential, I think the mm-hmm. base of that is exactly what I just said, like putting your head down, doing the work, being in the trenches, like being an actual coach. Um, uh, that being said, I, th- I think, you know, I, I had a bit of luck early in my career um, where I uh, adopted a lot of early, uh, I was an early adopter of a few things. So I, I was one of the first, I would say, Honestly, I would say first handful of coaches that, that had a fitness blog back in the day. Um, and I know now it's just different. Like, you know, I'm talking when I started a blog, it was 2005, 2006 mm-hmm. in that era. Um, now there's just more stuff uh, available for us to get our information out. It's just easier now. Back then, that was really all we had was, you know, either you had a blog that no one read or you or you <laughs> or you happen to be able to be an author on T Nation. Oh yeah, 100%. which definitely, which that uh, that of course is a big, 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 big component of you know my next the next tier of my of my own personal career. Um, so I think part of it is uh, in terms of me personally was was early early adopter of that and how I was able to use social media at a time when there was it wasn't so algorithm algor- I know there's algorithms, but then algorithm there's like a it, it wasn't, Rough it wasn't word. as, it was as constrained back then. Yeah. Um, gotcha. So I could, I could write a blog post, for example, put it up on Facebook or Twitter and it just naturally got a lot of engagement. Like, yeah, I'd like to think part of it partly was because I was a good writer and I put out good content, but also the, it's just the algorithms were different back then um, where you now it's like, even now, like I, I'll post something on Facebook or Instagram's a little less bad, but um, Facebook mm-hmm. for sure. It's like, it's just, it's like, it, it's just like, it's Dead. like a, it's like a, a drip compared to what it used to be. Um, so 
part of me thinks that the answer, which is probably the most unsexy answer is like, mm-hmm. yeah, you, you kind of have to build some career capital. Um, you do have to do the work. You, you do have to put in good work. You have to help get people get results, results, whether you're working with athletes or whether you're working with general population clients. Uh, and you have to be good at your craft. Uh, and that that's partly, you know, continuing education and uh, doing all that stuff. And and I just think naturally that's just going to elevate this, this. What's that term? Like, you know, all the tide raises all ships. Yeah. You know, um, I think just naturally that will happen just by the mere fact that you're building career capital and you're gaining experience. Like, I don't think anything really trumps experience in the industry. Um, very rarely does somebody become a personal trainer or a strength coach in this industry and immediately has monetary success. They might have notoriety in terms of like the, the content they put out, or maybe if they're lucky enough to work with like, uh, um, celebrities or, you know, athletes. So they, they kind of get some, they get like prestige points. Uh, Assumed authority of, is what I call it. Right. Yes. And, and we all, and you and I both know it doesn't really mean anything. No, it doesn't mean shit. <laughs> a lot of that is, com- all of that's complete luck anyways. Yeah, I know, I know so many ex like pro strength conditioning coaches who ride that until they uh, die and they, yeah. they make so much from it just because, Hey, I was like the ex. I worked with so-and-so coach. for a week. Like, yeah, you know, exactly. Our, our, well, that's, exactly. that's the worst kind, but. <laughs> so I want to kind of dive into social but, media a little bit of okay. like how you benefit from it because you use the word like use social media. And to me, yeah. it's like, people post on social media for two reasons, or, or at least in my mind. And mm-hmm. I know this may offend people, <laughs> but like one is ego. Oh, like, look, look how much, like I wait, I lift or look at me yep. exercise. And two, it's like, you're actually using it with a specific purpose to target the ideal clientele that you want and attract them into, you know, the services that you provide. Yep. And so for you, like you have in person, you own your own, place right now yes how do you see social media kind of helping you gain that kind of capital uh i think uh i think you're spot on with your with your with your insight on why people use social media and and i don't and believe me i don't have enough eye rolls to give a lot of the stuff i see on social media because i'm just like uh like really and i i and and truthfully i haven't been on it as much in the past year, especially in the, since the pandemic started, I honestly have not been in, uh, on it mm-hmm. as much just because I just feel like, you know, people are just trying to compete for everyone else's attention and it just gets old. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, it's, I just don't put, I don't invest any emotions into like what other people do because it's like, I, I think I'm very clear on how I want to use it for my personal yes. benefit in some ways. Yes. So it's like, as long as I'm clear about that and I know what I'm doing, I don't care what anyone else yes. is doing. Well, there's this pressure. I feel like a lot, we, we pressure ourselves to go, I didn't, I haven't put up a post in two days. Oh shit. Yeah. Like, and then that's when you start putting out shit content. Yeah. It's when you, when Brett Bartholomew has talked about this a lot. It's like, if you don't have anything to say, then don't fucking say it. Like, yeah. And then wait, isn't he, that... he doesn't, he doesn't say it like that, <laughs> but he's a little bit more eloquent in saying it, but. Indirectly. <laughs> but do you think that's like more of a. I think you know, it's I a have... necessary evil. Yeah. Um, with with yeah. regards to business. Mm-hmm. Um, I, me personally, I, and I've always said this to other fitness professionals when I do workshops, when, it, when we start talking about social media, I was like, no one rarely, rarely, I'm not saying it never happens, but rarely mm-hmm. is someone, is someone going to look at a video of you 
with your shirt off, say, I'm a dude, I have my shirt off and I'm doing, mm -hmm. you know, this, this heavy set of like bent over rows and no, no one is really going to watch that and be like, yeah, I want to go to that guy's gym and work out and work with that guy. Like 100%. no one really ever that happens. However, if I use social media to highlight videos of my clients doing some cool shit, or, or if it's actually, uh, or you, you're, you're, or you pick the scab of a problem. So like, say, you know, here's a problem that I see with people's squat technique and here's how you could probably better clean that up. So I think if you're informing the people of mm -hmm. you're, you're, you're bringing up a problem. So to me, I think the better, the better approach for most fitness professionals is one of two scenarios. Number one is you address a problem. So, and then you solve it, but don't, don't just bark at a problem and say, Oh, this like keto diets are so, are so stupid and they suck. Like, okay, why? Like, what's your, what, what is your, what's your counterpoint to it? Or, you know, oh, uh, back squats are so stupid. Like, why, why do people do back squats? And like, okay, well, why? Like explain your, explain your rationality and, and provide an answer to that. Mm -hmm. So if you do that and you're educating your readership, great. You're probably going to um, build up some engagement, probably some business as well, whether mm -hmm. it be somebody um, going to your website and perusing your services, somebody going to your website, oh, you, they, so, they sell an ebook, maybe I'll buy that. Or, hey, I didn't realize they were, they were located in the same city as me, maybe I'll seek them out, okay? Um, so if you do that and or highlight your clients doing some cool stuff or athletes doing some cool stuff, like um, I think nowadays that is going to be the, the better, more organic, more engaging way of drumming up business and, mm -hmm. and money, <laughs> uh, sure. using social media, media in those ways, which I know you do very well. Um, so you're always, sweet, Tony. well, you're always putting up good, good content. Like here, here's some, here's a, here's a, some cool warm up drills I'm doing at home and on a snow day. Yeah. Uh, and I, and like, but that are still athletic. They're not just like doing uh, soup can arm curls, you know, it's like, <laughs> you know, it's like, um, but that, but a lot of people are probably thinking that they're watching that video and be like, yeah, like I could, I could do these, like, you know, you know, uh, I don't know, those pulse, those pulse arm squats that you put in your post and yeah, look that uh, one up. Those, those um, <laughs> propulsive lunges with a, with a, with a light dumbbell or kettlebell. Um, you know, it's like, yeah, I'm, I'm, believe me, I'm stalking your stuff and stealing it. Don't worry. Like, it's it's, so uh, but uh, I think with social media, I think that's, those are the two ways that you can better arm yourself with social media in terms of drumming up business mm -hmm. um, and, and making more money. Because I think if people realize that you're putting up the content to make it about them um, and not necessarily about you, um, I just think it comes, it comes across in a, in a better fashion. That makes perfect sense. So you are in the private setting right now. You train in person and then you do like online stuff as well. Sure. So for me, I've seen that, you know, in person is definitely the bulk of my business. Mm -hmm. um, but I've never really gotten too many people from social media for in person. That's really right. just like referral based in like the community that I'm in. Yeah. Would you like, do you have those same experiences? Um, I, yeah, I would say the bulk of my in-person business is from current clients. Yes. Yeah. Um, for sure. Um, I, I have, be, I mean, but again, like I've been, I have a lot of stuff out there um, in terms of articles and blog posts. So yes, I have picked up clients from a Teen Nation article or from older mm -hmm. blog posts or whatever, but I agree with you, 95 to 99% to of my business in terms of in-person business 
um, is from just referrals from my current clients. And that would um, be a great tip for like young professionals of like, you know, do a great job with the people that you have. And then they're probably the people who are actually going to send you instead of you going out and find these like, you know, rare, you know, golden nuggets that yeah. from marketing or yeah. something like that. Um, I no, I agree with that. I, was, I think I've always said, if you keep, if you keep your current clients happy, um, like I'd rather have a core group of 20 clients that just stay with me in the long term than worrying about trying to get one or two every other, every other month just to keep my numbers up. You know, unfortunately that's kind of like the commercial gym conundrum. Um, and I, I, I really don't know why commercial gyms don't lean into that a little bit more from a managerial standpoint. Like if you, you know, if, if I have a, a rock star trainer who has a, has a cult loyal following of 20, 25 people constantly paying them sessions each month, why not give them a little bit more piece of that pie to keep those clients happy um, rather than worrying about hitting your quotas and, you know, and make, putting up all, all this undue pressure on, on, on trainers. But that's another conversation. Uh, <laughs> well, how about we go through, like, I feel like we both have had a bunch of experiences. You probably way more than me in like different settings. So like, you know, the collegiate realm, mm-hmm. um, commercial gyms, like owning your own business and being like independent kind of what are some like pros and cons that you see? To well, I do think, you know, as funnily as you bring it up, like I, I do think there's another um, connotation in the industry that gym ownership is somehow the Holy grail of the yeah. industry. And it is not, <laughs> uh, you know, I feel like people don't feel like they've made it unless they're either training celebrities or pro athletes, which isn't going to happen for most people or they, they own a gym, which mm-hmm. isn't going to be a good fit because most people are horrible business people, yes. um, you know, especially in the fitness industry. <laughs> uh, but, um, you know, I, but yeah, like I think, I, however, I think it behooves pretty much every fitness professional to spend time working in a commercial gym. Uh, I think most people in the industry have their start in that setting. Like I started in it, Eric Cressy started in it, Mike Robertson started in it. Uh, Jen, I mean, Jen Sinclair, Nia Shane, like the, Molly Galbraith, maybe yourself, I think maybe you, did you ever work in a commercial gym or have you always been collegiate? So I worked in like a private gym before collegiate well, kind setting. Kind of, so. sort of then, kind of, yeah. sort of. So, but I, I, I think for most, for the bulk of fitness professionals out there, you know, when you work in a commercial gym setting, you're, you're going to learn so much about your coaching style, like how to, how to how to mask it and like change it for other individuals with different personality styles and different goals and different backgrounds and different ability levels. Um, you're just going to make yourself a better coach, um, which then, you know, then you, 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 be, you become a master of your domain and then you, you get results a little bit quicker. You're a little bit more efficient with your coaching, which is why we pay plumbers and, and locksmiths $200 for 15 minutes of work. It's like, we get pissed at it. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's like, you know, we get like, I remember one time I, I, I locked myself out of my apartment back in the day and I, I had to wait two hours for the locksmith to show up and he spent two, 10 minutes and he opened up my door and I got a bill for 180 bucks. And I was like, fuck, like, but then when you really think about it, like, you, what would you rather do him come there and you have to wait another two hours for him to open up the lock and, and, and pay him $180 or would you rather like get that shit open as quickly as possible mm-hmm. and then pay him for his expertise, you know? So, <laughs> you, you know, when, when you're a good coach, Chances are, if someone like if someone hires you or I or Tim, 
and their goal is to, you know, their left shoulder hurts, or they, they have a chronic lower back pain, or they want to become a little bit more athletic, or they want to lift X amount of weight, they're probably going to get those results a little bit sooner working with one of the three of us compared to someone fresh out of, out of, you know, like certification school and just became a personal trainer. I'm saying probably, I'm not, I mean, certainly I'm not saying this is a truth, mm-hmm. um, but that's because we all have, the three of us have a lot of experience. Um, and, and with that comes, you know, we can charge more, we can, we can charge more money. We get, we get a higher percentage or whatever, or yeah, eventually maybe we open up our own gym and then, you know, we, we, we set the rules, <laughs> there you go. Um, but I will say, you know, there, which I'll probably, this is, this is going to be a discussion later on. I don't want to give away any of my, like, you know, stuff I was going to talk about later, but, um, you know, that's part of the reason why, you know, with, with gym ownership with me, like I left Cressy sports performance, uh, after being there for eight years to do my own thing. Um, and I, and it's no coincidence that since leaving there, like I've had my most, my most profitable, uh, um, years as a, as a professional from a monetary standpoint, you know, certainly a lot of that stems from the fact that I'm, I'm able to explore other things I want to do, like, you know, traveling for workshops, which that is another way of uh, another revenue stream is being able to, you know, travel and do workshops across the world, certainly not in the past year. Um, but that, but, but doing stuff like that, you know, when I, when I am my own boss, like I can, I can set my own schedule, like, which is, which is kind of cool. Damn right. <laughs> So one of the biggest life lessons I have ever learned is you get what you pay for. And not only is that like, so the people we work with, but it's also like you understanding your own value. And I think this is misinterpreted in our industry because yeah, I do understand the idea of, you know, having a volume based income early on, like you basically pump out people, have a ton of sessions because your income is based on how much sessions you have. And that gives you a ton of experience, right? But then as you like move on through your journey, you realize that quality is not great sometimes in that type of environment where it's like, if you charge people more, give them a higher quality service and you work less then it's kind of like this feedback loop, right? Yeah. My buddy, my buddy, Luke Worthington, um, good friend of mine who I do, who I do workshops with, he's based out of London. Um, and he brought, he, we, we discussed this like early in the year, cause we did, we did a mentorship together, um, with a group of fitness professionals. We'll be doing it again in May, I think as a, as a quick heads up, <laughs> um, Perfect. but he was saying like, he had, he had, he, he, he had this himself where he was like, you know, he was working with a consulting or a consultant of some sorts or having a conversation with one of his clients who was a, a consultant. And, and, and he was, and she was like, he was discussing all, he's kind of having this back and forth about upping his rates. You know, mm-hmm. he's having a hard time, hard time. Like, Oh, I'm, I'm really reticent to up my rates because I already charge quite a bit more than, well, I mean, he's in London. So it's, it's an expensive city, no matter what. So, you know, his rates are going to be higher anyway. But then the, the, his consultant friend was like, well, time, time is a commodity too. So would you rather have uh, 20 clients paying you a hundred dollars a session, or would you rather have 10 clients paying you 150, you know, or 200 or even double at two. And like, so you're basically breaking even, but you have mm-hmm. more time now. Yeah. Um, and he's like, he's like, Oh yeah. Like I never, I never thought of it that way. So, cause he was worried like if he upped his race that he was going to lose clients. 
-hmm. And the, the consultant was like, okay, so what? So say you up your rates, then you're, you're, you're still going to make the same amount of money, if not maybe more, but probably let's say it stays the same, but mm -hmm. now you have more time. Like then now you have more time to do the other shit that you want to do, get done. Like in terms of writing eBooks or doing uh, inf uh, informational products or consulting or doing whatever. And he was like, it was like oh. being punched in the face. It was like, oh yeah, <laughs> like that actually, that makes a lot of sense. Like, oh, <laughs> so, oh, um, and again, I think it comes a lot, it comes down to that initial uh, statement I said, like, I feel like in the industry, we're kind of shamed if we want to make money or if we, or if we feel like we should be making more money or that it's wrong to ask for more money or what we think we're worth. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I, unfortunately, I, it's, it's, it is what it is, but it just, it's, it's not, it's not true for a lot of us. It's okay to, you know, charge more money if you feel like you're, you're worth it. <laughs> Tony, Tony, let's say that again for the listeners at home. It's okay. Yeah. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. Yes. Yes. It's okay. <laughs> like I, you know, I see these like energetic 20 year olds working like 14 hour days and that's cool and that's great. But then it's like, okay, now we have to move on from the stage of, you know, just making our lifestyle, our career to actually making a lifestyle that, your career can kind of evolve around and, and suit better. Um, and those are the things that we, we want to discuss. Like, it's like, yeah, you, you gotta not feel bad for what you're, you're going to charge people because people will pay for it. And like, especially where you live, right. In like Brookline and Needham. Oh, yeah. It's, it's a lot. Yeah, different we, yeah. You and I, you and I can charge the money we, we, we asked for because a lot of it dictated by where we're located. Location. Yeah. Um, like I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna beat around the bush. Like I, I, my studio is located in a very affluent, yes, uh, a, like a pretty affluent neighborhood where people have disposable income. Like yes. I, I can, that most when I say my rates, most people are like, okay, like I, I don't really have to. I can, just, I can just say what the rate is, and they're like, okay. Um, I mean, you go to New York City, it's even worse. Like in, a, like I remember, I had, you know, I have, I have friends in New York City who are like. You know what, what's your one-on-one -on -one rate and i tell them what it is like they like laugh at me and i yeah. think it's like i think it's like absurd like i can't believe i'm asking somebody to pay me this for an hour of my time mm -hmm. and i'm like I, I i feel uncomfortable sometimes i mean i mean we all kind of get in our heads a little bit and then they're like yeah uh you should be asking for at least like 50 100 more an hour um because in new york it's like the price points are even like like but then there's like this whole kind of just like well if you're not charging that high then then this is saying that you you must not be good yeah, no. Um, which is a whole nother, true. which is a whole nother psychological game that we play with ourselves. But, 100%. Um, and then also like online, your rate isn't dictated by your location right. in some ways. So that's, it may right. be so someone who's not living in an affluent area, right. like moving a little bit more online. That's what you have yeah. a whole world. And then in this past year, if we've learned anything in the industry, we've learned, I, I'm, I can't believe I'm going to say the word, but I'm going to say, it cause I'm sick of saying it, but we've pivoted, mm -hmm. uh, no, I've been fortunate enough where I still have my studio. Like, yes, I was shut down for a few months, but I've been able to have a, a, an in-person training studio since late June. Um, but certainly like the idea of transitioning or, or having the option of doing stuff online only makes sense. I mean, mm -hmm. from a revenue, like from a revenue uh, um, level standpoint, just kind of like keeping it even. Yeah. Um, no, but certainly, yeah, there, I have, I, I know people who crush it online. Mm -hmm. um however they were good in-person coaches first uh i i love you just that you just said to me that. to me that's to me that's the difference maker like i i 
your uh, online training, that space is way more laborious. Uh, from it's just it's so much more time consuming. Like you're not going to be in Cancun on your laptop looking at the ocean, you know, writing programs for people. No, you know, yeah, you you might be doing that, but you're not looking at the ocean. You're looking at your laptop. <laughs> like you know, you know um, and I, I I think those those individuals who do crush it online, m- most of the time, uh, we're just we're very good in person coaches first. Because I mean, because honestly, if, if you can't coach a deadlift in person or fix good it, you're online. not you're not gonna you're not gonna be able to do it online. Um, and then it comes down to like systems and, and, and stuff like that. But um, me personally, like I do offer online coaching, which yes is another source of revenue on, on the side that kind of you know is part of the funnel. Um, but I limit mine to no more than fifteen um, because I feel like any in terms of individualized coaching. Yeah. Um, I there's another service I have that I, I, I don't know people can't see me in quotations is canned programming, um, okay. where it's just like. I'm going to write these, these coherent strength and conditioning programs that people can follow just for structure, mm-hmm. you know, assuming you're not training for anything specific, assuming you don't have any injuries, you're going to follow this program and, and some good shit's going to happen. Um, my, the people paying me for my individualized coaching, however, I limit that to 15 because I feel like anything over that, um, I feel like the quality of programming goes down because my time is just, because I'm also juggling my in-person coaching uh, not to mention, I'd like to hang out with my kid and wife sometimes too. Um, so I, and I just feel like I made the personal choice that anything over that number, I, I, ha- I have to cap it. Um, That's smart. But, but you know, I, I, I feel like I'm able to do it well because I, I have been coaching people in person for so long and I know how to coach people in person really well. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, I can do so online at a fairly well way too. That's, um, that's fantastic. And, and I want to kind of mention what you do for other trainers. So people rent out the space that you own. Right. And I, to me, that's like the ideal situation. Mostly because I think, I think it's pretty ideal. It's um, freaking fantastic. I know it's scary. I know some people were, were, were like, Tony, really, you sure you want to do that? Like you can get in a, like you, you can come into some issues. I've never had an issue with it. I've been doing it for five years. Um, Granted, granted, it's a, it's a small location. Like, so for those listening in, so I'm here coaching, I use my own space for 20, 25 hours a week. But when I'm not here, there are other coaches that rent that pay me rent to be able to use the space and, and run and do their own personal training business out of there. So when I'm not there, they're using it, but then they're paying me rent, which helps my overhead. So mm-hmm. I, I'm at a point where my overhead is covered in then some, which again is another source of revenue. Yeah, <laughs> um, multiple and then now, streams. and, and I, I'm actually have my phone right here. I'm waiting for a text to get clarification on the, on the build out that we're doing, right? Like to see if it's going to be approved. Um, Cause now the idea is to take the same format, what I do now um, and do it in a larger space um, where I have, instead of right now I have, think four or five coaches that rent a space, but only one at a time. There's only one coach in here at a time, get a larger space, have eight to 10 coaches, but maybe two or three going at the same time. Um, but they're all vetted by me. They're all, they're all coaches. I know who are competent, um, kind of somewhat share the same philosophical approach from a coaching standpoint, which I feel is important. Um, you know, and then we just kind of help each other grow and build and thrive. And there'll be a little cross pollination there, offer some physical therapy. My wife's going to have her mental health therapy or private practice there. Psychology. Um, 
and yeah, hopefully it works out. And then uh, I, I, I don't eat my words, but, um, <laughs> but so far, I mean, I think it's a model that works very well. Um, and uh, yeah, and, and, and yes, it's a, it again, is, a, is another source of revenue that I have in, in my back pocket because uh, it's very helpful because when I'm not here using it, like I, the space is still quote unquote making money, um, which is very helpful. Absolutely. So, you know, if you were to sum up like a few tips or advice, if you want to give it to your younger self or just like yeah. young trainers in general, in terms of thinking about reasonable incomes and revenue streams, what, what kind of like, um, I mean, I, th- I, I, I think it behooves every trainer to think about them. Like, I, I, I don't think, I don't, I mean, I personally don't view myself training people in person when I'm 65 years old. Uh, so that's, so part of what I, why I said, well, you know, I better diversify a little bit. Okay. Maybe I should do offer some online stuff, do a little writing. Um, oh, writing is my strong suit though. I know some people are probably listening to me. Oh, I, I can't write. Well, you, that's what YouTube is for. That's what Instagram, like, I mean, there's people yeah. who are very good, who are very good on camera, um, who, you know, are able to make that into a revenue stream. Like it isn't, you know, followers don't automatically mean money. Let's just make that clear. Thank you for <laughs> um, saying that. But, uh, <laughs> But again, uh, if you're doing it for the right reasons, uh, I think you can make it, you can make it worth your while, um, you know, and then, you know, it, you know, thankfully, like my, my, my career has just kind of progressed pretty organically, like, which led to me doing some local speaking engagements, which then led to me doing more national engagements, which then led to me being able to travel the world and doing workshops and, you know, developing products with colleagues, like, you know, Dean Somerset and I have, uh, the complete shoulder hip blueprint, which, you know, originally we were, we were just doing in, in-person workouts across the world, which, you know, we would get 30, 40, 50 attendees, which is great. Um, but then we filmed it and then make that, I mean, that, 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 that was a career changer for me. When I, when I got that first affiliate check from the first product, I was like, holy shit, like, this is cool. <laughs> like, Let's do more of these. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, I mean, and, and not that it's like, you know, buying me a, a condo here in Boston or anything, but it's a nice little like, like buffer, which is fantastic. Um, uh, so, you know, certainly the early, the earlier you start sending yourself up for that type of things, you just be able to diversify your career, um, you know, and then you get to set your own rules, like and set your own schedule. And, um, you know, I, I just think that's a, it's a cool thing. I mean, let's, we, we're in an awesome industry. I mean, we get to, we literally get to wear sweatpants every day, which doesn't suck. I know we, I know it's an old joke. It's a very cliche joke. It's the main um, reason I got into this. It's, it's a cool, yeah. it's a cool perk. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I don't know if I answered your question, but, um, but that, yeah, I, I think the, the sooner you learn to diversify and not just be not only in-person training, um, mm-hmm. then, you know, and just kind of like trickle out a little bit. So, cause like, like this past year proved it. Like if, if that, if that gets shut down, then what do you got? Um, you, you need to be able to have other ways of working 100%. around that. Um, you know, so I, I'm assuming this past year helped people realize that a little bit more. Yeah. It's, it's funny that you bring up this past year because, you know, if you didn't at some point sit down with yourself and think about what this past year has taught you, then it's basically no good because, so I think about this, if I was still in the D one setting collegiate level and I didn't leave too long ago, I would have lost my job. Yeah. yeah. I would have scared to think about that. Yeah. It's terrifying to think about that. Yeah. I love that place, but I always kind of had this future mindset of exactly like what you said before. I'm not going to be a D one collegiate strength coach at 65. 
And then, you know, thinking about the fact that I probably would have been on unemployment right now with no idea what to do is terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. And I know every single pretty much strength conditioning coach that I knew at the time in the collegiate level had a second revenue stream, had a second job, yeah. either training people in person. I know some people like reft on the weekends or things like that. It's because you don't make any money pretty much, especially living in like a city, like zero money. <laughs> And so you're giving a trade secret right there. Like, yeah. It, it's funny that you said that about like <laughs> sports. It's like, why does everyone want to work in pro sports or collegiate? Well, sports? that, and that's funny. Cause I don't make you know, any money. There's a joke. I saw that there's a, there's a Twitter or a, um, a Twitter profile on, on uh, called uh, I think insecure strength conditioning coach, which is Ooh. hilarious. Uh, and he, it, it's, it's a satire thing where he's like, you know, so like a real coach put up his schedule for the for the day. It was like 6 a.m. I have this team, 7 a.m. is this team, 8 a.m. is this team, 9 a.m. is this team. It was like a, mm-hmm. it was like a full like 12 hour day. And he's like, I don't I don't know if he was wearing it as a badge of honor, um, but maybe he kind of started, and he probably was like, oh, look how hard I'm working. And, and, then, exactly. and, and, and then some people were like, well, where's time for your family? And where's time for personal development? Where's time for to eat? Um, yeah. Uh, and, How much you get paid? And yeah, I mean, we all know like entry level is like atrocious. It's like, mm-hmm. oh yeah, you're 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 working seventy hours a week for twenty five k a year. Like, uh, yep. like that's unfortunate. Um, and yeah, I, I I remember when I spoke at the NSCA event a few years ago, and I I openly said like I I actually prefer training Gen Pop clients. Like I I worked at I I was a co founder of Cressy Sports Performance, mm-hmm. trained a lot of high level baseball players, major league baseball players which is great. I liked it, but I've always loved working with just a regular person, you know, helping them do better push-ups and helping them get out of pain and helping them become a deadlifting badass, whatever. And I remember during the, the, the separate Q and a, it was an open floor and I was standing next to Greg Knuckles and we were just kind of like shooting the shit. And then uh, I, I had at least three people come up to me and be like, so you actually, you really like training gen pop clients? Like why? Like what, what, what was, why wouldn't you just want to train professional athletes all the time? And I was like, well, think of it this way. There are far more people in the general population than there are professional athletes. And guess who pays the bills? Gen pop clients. <laughs> uh, so if you yes. think of it that way, monetarily, like, I mean, it, it's just common sense. I mean, so. I think the biggest thing <laughs> when I switched, well, not the biggest thing, one of the many things um, when I switched over to the private setting was, you know, I, I always like, Oh, I just want to coach the same people that I was coaching like 20 year olds. And then I realized, huh, 20 year olds aren't going to pay me if yeah. their parents were going to pay me, but then no, wait, they're in college. So they already have like a strength Michigan program. Like, why do they need me? And yeah, to this day, I probably, I've had like one collegiate like person who who's come to see me and that's about it. Yeah. yeah. It's uh, so yeah. I mean, I mean, if you just do the math, it just makes sense that I mean, I'm not going to tell people not to follow their goal, their goals and and, and dreams to train Mm -hmm. athletes. Um, But uh, I mean, there are plenty of high school athletes and college athletes compared to professional athletes. So even if you thought of it that way, I mean um, I mean, there's guy, there's like Erica Sutter, um, uh, Jerry, uh, uh, the Filippo, um, Joe Aratari, like all these younger coaches in Twitter on, I see on Twitter who are coaching young athletes, like high mm-hmm. school, college, 
they're doing very well in the private sector. Um, it is, it is, it is strength and conditioning for athletes, but they are crushing uh, the young athlete sector. Yeah. Um, but and they're, they're but they're well. marketing to parents. Would you agree sure, with that? Sure. Not yes. to, yeah, exactly. Right. So I mean, I mean, we learned that very early in at Cressy Sports Performance. It's like parent, parents will spend money on their kids. Like let, let's, there's, there's no, there's no doubting that. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, so yeah, and you know, like the collegiate setting is, you know. I, I always knew I had a consistent income, you know, at, at some Which is, point, yeah, you know, right? there, there's That's job, great. there's jobs, I guess, if you want to security. say job security, 100%. like you'll, you'll have a steady paycheck, you'll have benefits, mm-hmm. uh, I think. Yeah. Um, and Very then, good benefits. uh, yeah. And then you got, then you, you, you also get the, I mean, the, the side of side effect of just watching your athletes grow and get better and become better humans and, uh, yeah, it depends what school and, you work for, but like sometimes you can travel with them, see yeah. cool stuff, kind of a thing. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about like the private setting until uh, whenever Tim decides yeah, to is, arrive he might, he, on this. He said, uh, "Oh, he's texted me. How are you looking? Standing by, counting the second. Oh, he's standing by, I guess." He knows the link. He's so silly. Yeah, just tell him to come in. Little Timmy. <laughs> All right. Last question. We'll get to this. But yeah, yeah. Let's talk a little bit of like the private setting in terms of um, like, give me some like, what have you seen in the private setting in terms of like benefits of the trainer? So this is what I'm, I'm going to give you my, my two cents about okay. this. So usually commercial gyms, you know, you don't make that much money or a large cut is taken out from the session because in general, the, the gym is providing you with clients and I I can get down with that. Totally cool. The worst situation I've ever seen in slash been in is both of those take, taking a huge chunk of the session income, but then also telling you that you need to go out and get clients and you're responsible for bringing clients in. So how do you see like that play out a little bit? Oh man. Well, I think, um, I mean, it's unfortunate. I mean, I, I've been in that scenario too. Nothing, nothing where it was like as bad as your experience. Um, <laughs> but I mean, it's, it's also, it's also kind of how you frame it too. Cause like, yes, I do agree. Like if, a, if, a, if you're hired by a gym and they're providing you clients, it only makes sense that they're going to get a cut, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, but then how, I think how some commercial gym trainers frame it, like they see, okay, you know, I'm only getting 25 to 30% of this session. So like my client is paying, you know, here in Boston, if you, if you're working at a commercial gym, most of those clients are paying anywhere, 80, 90, hundred, $110 a session, yep. you know, and then the trainer's getting, maybe 30, $35 yes. for the session. And they're like, Oh, what the hell? What's up with that? Um, you know, but, and they, they just think like the, the gym is just putting that money in their pocket and they're not yeah, <laughs> like they open. have, they have rent, they have liability insurance, they have utilities to pay, they got staff to pay. Mm-hmm. So it isn't like, they're just like bringing in all the money. So I, I do think there's a degree of like expectation management. Um, Definitely. That they, yeah, have they, to understand, they have to understand that the, the gym has overhead. <laughs> like, yes. Yeah. So, uh, so hello, Tim. So there's that, um, you know, yeah. And then it becomes a bit problematic or it becomes a bit, um, what's what I'm looking for? Um, intimidating when then the gym's like, okay, now you trainer, you have to go get your own clients. Now, you know, we, we, we've kind of let you float a little bit. Now you gotta go spread your wings and 
go find some clients. Mm -hmm. To me, I think if that is the case, then it only makes sense. And again, this is my own personal opinion that it makes sense that you gotta, you gotta um, incentivize the trainers, you know? So like, I think they they should get a bigger chunk or bigger percentage of, of those sessions, particularly if those clients keep paying. Um, Yes. So to me, like, I I mean, that's just how my brain works. Like if I want to make my trainers happy and I want them to, keep accruing revenue for the gym and they're making these people happy. Like these people keep buying training packages with this trainer, but they, that trainer should get more of that pie. And they're, they're obviously making them very happy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then certainly if they're bringing in their own sessions without our help, they sh- certainly should get a bigger piece of that pie. So there's gotta be some sort of incentivization there, which I do believe Equinox does pretty well. Yeah. I think of if any, of any commercial gym that I've been affiliated with i've never worked at an equinox i i, I present for them quite often mm-hmm. um but they do a really good job of incentivizing their trainers certainly they so yeah the more sessions they do the bigger percentage they get um, but i also think they incentivize them with continuing education they incentivize them with experience um which is great i mean i it, where it becomes a bit problematic is when those rates are just stagnant um it's just like nope this is the rate this is what you're getting so no matter how hard you work you're just going to get the same rate that that that's a bunch of bs if you ask me (laughs) i told you you can swear here it's a safe space (laughs) all right well hopefully that's you know helpful for a a lot of people and and i'll continue to talk about like uh you know various revenue streams for trainers especially again like you said during this time you have to step back and be like you know i have one revenue stream what if something happens where that gets cut off what do i do kind of now but yeah. it's a good thought process. But Thank you for listening to the More Train, Less Pain podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. The more positive reviews we get, the easier it becomes for fine movement professionals like you to find us. And the more time Michelle and I can devote to bringing on high caliber guests and continuing to produce a high quality show. If you're still listening, that means you're pretty cool. And that likely means your friends are pretty cool too. We'd love for them to become fans of the show. Spread the injury prevention love and the biomechanical knowledge by sharing a screenshot of your favorite episode on Instagram. Be sure to tag at Dr. Michelle Bolin and at Tim Richard DPT when you do. Now get out there and go train.